Hello, welcome to today's episode of this week's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I am Corwin Heller. And uh, we're talking to you about the 1940 film Rebecca and the 1999 film uh, Office Space. Corwin, where do you want to start? I don't care. Uh... All right, let's start with uh, Office Space this time. Um, Yeah, why not? So, yeah, Office Space was uh, written and directed by Mike Judge. Um, It stars Ron Livingston, Jennifer Aniston during her run on Friends, uh, and David Herman. Uh, It had an estimated budget of... $10 $10 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of $10.8 million. Uh, I'm also seeing somewhere around $12 million. Regardless, this is not a movie that was overly financially successful when it was released. This is more of a cult classic in which it became popular um, after its theatrical run. Anywho, uh, this film's tagline is a comedy from Mike Judge, creator of Beavis and Butthead and co creator of King of the Hill. These are facts. <laughs> Mike Judge uh, podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, the film is has no major awards, nominations, nor wins, and it is about uh, three company workers who hate their job, decide to rebel against their greedy boss. Uh, Corbin, tell me what you think about Office Space. Um, it's one of the scarier documentaries that uh, is kind of talked about as being a perfect indication a perfect uh, little snapshot of what it's like to work in corporate america and boy it's so true um it's one of those films where like anytime you watch it you just find another little thing that you're like yeah that's it and it just it's it's so easy to watch i really feel like i could watch it three times in a row and still enjoy it because it's it doesn't do anything crazy. It doesn't do anything special. It doesn't do anything to, you know, be extravagant over the top or, you know, steal the show. It's just genuinely written, genuinely fun and all around uh, enjoyable film. Yeah, it's it's a lighthearted film that actually has really a relatively <laughs> I don't know, kind of dark um, reality to it, which is that uh, corporate America can be soul-sucking and heartless and demoralizing and break you, uh, <laughs> but delivers it in a very, again, lighthearted package. Um, and really, I it I don't want to make it sound like too dark, because it's really not, but it, it touches on about a lot of the oh man, the little shit that drives you up a fucking wall. And I remember distinctly watching this when I was in like high school or college and thinking like, oh, you know, that's totally what I expect the working world to be, but like probably dramatized to a degree. And uh, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, (laughs) not that much. Um, And to that effect, this movie is just as fresh and funny every time I watch it, which mm-hmm. is difficult to accomplish. 
And it's so refreshing to have a film that, I don't know, what, what year did this come out again? 99. 99. Where I guess it really wasn't all that long ago. Time means nothing. But I definitely see this being a film that doesn't, no, I can't even say that because now we have remote everything and it's changed everything. Well, this had a nice run, nice 22-year run. Math is hard. Uh, and this film will never be able to be relatable again. But hey, it was nice while it lasted. It worked really well. For what reason? I'm Because now we have remote offices and we're not going in the office as much. So you don't get that same monotony and bullshit like that. Oh. Can't be as relatable. Oh, believe me, man. It's still every fucking uh, team's meeting I join in on Monday gets a happy Monday. Every Friday one gets a happy Friday. Dude, I, it's happy everything. Happy Monday, happy Tuesday, classic Wednesday. Oh, my God. Shut the fuck Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. I don't want to hear it. Looks like somebody's having a case of the Mondays. Yeah. Oh, my God. Every minor error someone makes on a Monday. Oh, such a Monday. Suck a dick. Mm. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Um, Man. But anyway... Uh, this this movie really has um, heavy nihilistic undertones. <laughs> Basically, the plot of the movie is that this guy, Peter Gibbons, although his name really doesn't matter um, because he is a drone in the cog and machinery of this corporation, um, works a menial job where he does something very small that is difficult to describe to his friends, which reminds me very much of my first job. Oh my God. Trying to describe Corbin. Do you remember what my first job was? Um, just out of curiosity, just yes or no, just out no. of curiosity. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and basically he gets, um, yeah, his job sucks. His uh, fiance, I believe sucks. Fan, yeah, was this his girlfriend? Okay, just his girlfriend. Yeah, um, I can't remember if there was a ring there or not. And uh, because Anne sees that his life is miserable and he hates it, she internalizes that as being reflective upon her. Really, she wants him to be less of a piece of shit and brings him to a psychoanalyst or a hypnotherapist, I should say. And the hypnotherapist puts him in a state where he comes out of it and realizes, holy shit, none of this matters, and I don't care. Um, and then decides to stop giving a shit about his job, breaks up with Anne and decides to just kind of start going for it in life, whether that's with, uh, whatever, what's her real fuck Jennifer Anson's character, Joanne, um, whom he asks out very easily in this post hypnotherapy session world, um, or if it's the scamming of the of the company he works for, which he also does with rel- very little second thought or remorse. Um, and I think it's a big point that adds to the relatability of the film for two reasons, in my mind. One, the idea that the burnout of corporate work any work really, but this film is specifically corporate work, so we're there. Um, can lead you to stop giving a shit is oh my god, relatable. 
And also the idea that what you're doing day to day in corporate America has so little societal impact that it can prone you to nihilism about your work is also very relatable. I don't want to get too specific as to what my job is because I don't like putting my personal business out there, but I basically work in the copiers industry and boy, howdy, does that make me not give a shit as to whether or not people are upset with how their day's going. Yeah. No one's life is starting or stopping at the end of a copy machine, you know, it, mm-hmm. and that's how I, I, so I, I totally your get character in office space, which uh, is also very relatable since I changed jobs um, to where I now work in the copy industry. But uh, I mean, it's true. If your job isn't like, I don't know, literally saving someone's life. Um, it's probably mundane and boring and you shouldn't care about it very much. Cause it doesn't mean anything. That's my, that's my take. <laughs> Yay. I don't mean, what do you, um, what do you think about like the nihilism in there? Uh, it's incredibly relatable when it comes to looking at your own life, living in a corporate, you know, cubicle. Um, I don't work in a cubicle, but it's enough of that, you know, monotonous droning on every day that, it's hard not to be nihilistic, fucking words, nihilistic. Um, and it just kind of comes with the the mindset that you have working this kind of job. You know, if you're not doing something that is a passion, if you're not doing something that is, you know, always changing, always evolving, if you're not doing something that has meaning and purpose, it gets old really quick because you're not doing it for the love of the work you're doing it for survival and you're doing it to make money and keep food on the table and you know just keep going and you don't want to be doing that you're doing it because you have to so it really leads to that kind of mindset fairly quickly and i think touching on a lot of these just below the surface concepts that the everyman experiences is what makes Mike judge um, such a good creator, I guess, content creator, writer, whatever you want to use it as. Because if you take everything that he ha- all his work at face value, you are going to have a good time. Beavis and Butthead is fun as it is. Um, King of the Hill is fun as it is. Uh, uh, idiocracy is fun as it is Silicon Valley is fun as it is mm-hmm. and if you are able to relate to it connect to it or see a, a level below above below I don't know uh, whatever is on the service being presented to you it also has a there's more in there to digest that you don't necessarily need to enjoy the movie or whatever it is um, but is also an interesting, like Mike Judge is in this movie. Uh, he plays, uh, oh, what's the fucking construction guy name that he, that he plays? Uh, I don't know who he plays. Wait, is that not Mike Judge? I've always thought that was Mike. Think, who's, who's the neighbor? So. Uh, oh, Lawrence. That, uh, that's Diedrich Bader. Sorry, my bad. Yeah, I oh, always want to think it's Mike Judge. He plays the manager from Shoney's. Not Shoney's, whatever the place is called. 
Tchotchkes. The restaurant. Mike Judge does? Yeah. I just Googled it. Oh. All right. Oh, anyway. Stan, the Tchotchkes mar- manager. Boom. There, well, there, there you go. He was in there somewhere. Uh, anyway, uh, William or, or Diedrich Baker's character, Lawrence, when asked by Peter what he wants most out of life or something to that effect, his answer famously, Corwin, is? Um, I, f- I missed the question. Because you were doing some bullshit on your phone, you um, bitch. I was. I was yeah. on the IMDb <laughs> page for uh, Office Space. When, when, uh, when Peter asks, uh, uh, what's his fucking name again? God damn it. Lawrence what he wants most out of every if he could do anything what he would do <laughs> two chicks at the same time man <laughs> which on its face one is funny and two is a little bit of a brutish answer but also part of the point of that is that it's a very simplistic desire that Peter might not think of as something that could actually like he's so stuck within a realm where all of his answers are so existential that he has all of his questions are so existential he has no answers to them that he's not even looking at life for the simple pleasures like two chicks at the same time man mm-hmm. um, and he can't get out of any of his ruts because he's not looking at the easier solutions and there's a lot of like concepts like that throughout all of Mike Judge's properties but again you don't need them you don't need them to enjoy these movies. And that's what makes them so fucking fun. Um, as for the actual plot of this movie, uh, Peter becomes disillusioned with his job, convinces two of his coworkers to also, who are also disillusioned with their jobs to help him essentially skim money off the top of their operations by making use of a rounding error. Um, and then they get caught at the end and he has to do community service as a construction worker and ends up loving it or some shit like that mm-hmm. um yeah plot wise this movie is i mean it's not fucking inception it's it's very straightforward i will say i just want to add uh the bobs representing like the middle management and just like tinkering of every corporate structure of any company ever where they basically make up just the most random shit to value it just it hurts it hurts how accurate it is yeah i constantly have to i constantly have to explain to people that at my job one of my bosses isn't really like my boss he just got shuffled around in the org chart at my company and ended up above my actual boss so it's like we technically report to him but he doesn't know what we do and we don't respect that much so, but not respect, but we don't like have to take, mm-hmm. he doesn't have any say power in what we do, but because of the York chart, he's over, he's over top of us. And so like, now that I've had that experience of like, you know, what would you say you do here? Uh, man, that hurts so much more. It hurts a little bit more because uh, fuck, they'll put anyone wherever, regardless of how much or how little they're contributing to anything. oh man this movie is uh it should be required watching for every like high school or college student about to go into the workforce 
Yeah, honestly, I think so. If even just to convey the message, not that like corporate work is the worst and you should avoid it, which I think some people will probably take away from that, this movie. And that's fair. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but even just for the concept of, Hey, maybe don't take your job so seriously because uh, chances are you just don't have to. Yeah. Do you think you'd be happier working construction than working? No. your? Uh, no, no, absolutely not. I'm, I'm not built for that. I'm built to sit at a desk all day. I just, I just don't want to work. Touche. You just, put me, just put me at the desk. <laughs> but don't make me do anything. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I want to try and do that tomorrow. As we all should. As we all should. What do you think of Jennifer Aniston in this? Um, well, I mean, she's 90s Jennifer Aniston, so, you know, she's gorgeous. Um, but she... I mean, she's a hell of a relatable character um, working the restaurant industry for as long as I did, which was like, I don't know, like seven years. It's not that long. Um, you definitely get that kind of mindset of just like, I just want to say fuck you to everyone in this restaurant all the time. And all the gung-ho people that are all about like, again, like the corporate culture is just like, go to fucking hell. It, this is ridiculous but yeah no she was great nothing special yeah. but she did the job she needed to do well i i always look at this movie as like ah this is why you were the friend with the most of a career after this yeah because you can like you can survive in a movie relatively by yourself right Whereas looking at Courtney uh, Cox yes. in Scream shows why she couldn't. And I don't know anything else that Lisa Kudrow's in. She's mainly been a TV actress. I can't think of. I can think of. Oh, I can think of one movie she was in, where she was like a principal or something that was pretty good. Oh, but she's mostly yeah, a TV yeah, actress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that was that Easy A? I don't know. With Emma Stone. I don't think I've ever seen that. Oh, I don't know. She's been yeah. Yeah. And then the male friends are a fucking mess outside of uh, Matt LeBlanc. Uh, everywhere. Yeah. It was easy. Eh? Way to go, Josh. Hey! All right. Random Emma Stone film from like 2010. I'm very proud of myself for that one. Pulled that one straight out my butt. Um, Do you yeah. keep many things there? Everything I can, baby. Gotta respect that the brown was. pocket painful uh <laughs> oh you know what the last thing i saw her in was fucking space force oh i stopped watching that after two episodes because it was very bad and i did not like it i don't think i finished the second episode but she was in those first two episodes i dude i don't even remember that so <laughs> i saw it advertised on like my netflix or whatever and um wow i just do not give a fuck about that show. It was very, very bad. So, yeah, I don't blame you. Um, yeah. So, Corbin, do you have any other thoughts on this? You ready to give me a number of stars for this? What do you got? Um, I'll give this a four. I like this movie a lot. It's nothing special, but it's hard not to enjoy it. 
Yeah, I mean, we have talked many times, but like the different scales you judge movies on based on how you classify them within your own mind. And for me, this is like the easy watch, lighthearted comedy movie. Um, Mm -hmm. And in terms of that, yeah, I agree. This is absolutely a four. This is exactly what you turn on this type of movie to be. Mm -hmm. that's, That's all there is to it. So I'm about it. It is a great TV movie. Yeah, it's a very it's it is a perfect Sunday at like one o'clock and there's not a baseball game on movie. Oh, absolutely. This movie was built for to be on during daylight. I watched this <laughs> after playing a round of golf yesterday, and it was the perfect way to just kind of relax. I'm with you. With you, baby. Uh all right. Well then let's take this on over down to London town or wherever the fuck this movie takes place. I don't really give a shit. Uh, that's Rebecca, 1940s Rebecca. It was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, this film was written screenplay by Robert E. Sherwood and Joan Harrison. Uh, it's based on the novel by Daphne du Maurier. And there's also adaptation, and I don't know what that pertains to, by Philip McDonald and Michael Hogan. So just take adaptation to be whatever you feel like it being um it stars Laurence olivier joan fontaine and george sanders it feels like those are the types of names to give a lot of stank on them old timey stank um i have a budget here uh uh that i don't think makes any sense at least in terms of its corresponding box office so imdb has it listed as a 1.28 million dollar budget which is in line with what wikipedia has uh but the box offices are very different for imdb it says seventy two thousand dollars, which that doesn't make any sense um versus wikipedia having it at six million which i would think makes more sense but it's the 1940s who the fuck cares <laughs> let's uh let's move it on Um, This film's tagline was the shadow of this woman darkened their love. Yeah, I mean, that's an apt description of the film. Yeah, sure. Uh, It's not offensive and I wouldn't scoff at it. So in terms of taglines, that's actually pretty good for us. Yeah. Uh, this film won two Oscars on the back of, jeez, uh, four, six, eight, ten, eleven nominations. It won for Best Picture for David O. Selznick uh, and Best Cinematography, Black and White, for George Barnes. It was also nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role for Laurence Olivier, Best Actress in a Leading Role for Joan Fontaine, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Judith Harrison, Best Director for Alfred Hitchcock, Best Writing Screenplay for Robert E. Sherwood and Joan Harrison, Best Art Direction Black and White for Lyle R. Wheeler, Best Film Editing for Hal C. Kern, Best Effects Special Effects for Jack Cosgrove um, Photographic, and Arthur Johns Sound, um, and then Best Music Original Score for Franz Waxman. Jeez, these are some names, folks. Um, The film is about a self-conscious woman who juggles adjusting to her new role as an aristocrat's wife and avoiding being intimidated by his first wife's spectral 
presence. Uh, this was my movie, so I will start. So in the vein of Alfred Hitchcock movies, this film obviously is about uh, a murder mystery, the suspense kind of deal. But this film, because it's so early in Hitchcock's repertoire, is at a cross section in time in a lot of ways for how films are set up, told, and made. And that is the more quaint productions that you had in the 30s, not necessarily in terms of like everything was very la-di-da, but more so in terms of like pacing and uh, dialogue, I guess I would say, versus how films progress in the 50s to being a little bit more direct in terms of how they were getting to or just pro- providing you with their with their their tales obviously there are exceptions we'll talk about m in 1933 and um there's lots of you know early horror movies like the cabinet of dr caligari shit like that but by and large for major productions you're getting a lot more it happened one nights than you are the cabinet of dr caligari you're so, just saying words at this point man Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that shit. I'm here to lose you. So, um, it has a lot of the elements of both types of movies, like later Hitchcock psycho stuff and early Hollywood, like, uh, you know, light intrigue romance stuff. And I find this to be a lovely melding of the two. It's not my favorite Hitchcock movie, which is why I said when I picked it last week, I have not seen this in a while because this is not the movie you go to when you're reaching for a Hitchcock. And I think for a reason, but I do enjoy this as it is. It's not my favorite. I don't know. Cora, what do you think? Um, as many of you who have listened to this before know, I'm, I am not uh, an avid fan of pre-1960s cinema, really. Um, really, anything pre-Bonnie like Bonnie and Clyde era or like that style of filmmaking uh, where it's more theater than like the modern structure and, and technique that we know today. And this just never really grasped. Like, I never grasped onto this. I just, it didn't do much for me. I just, I didn't connect with it. I didn't really care much for the you know theatrical almost style of it it was just it had moments but it was just kind of scenes that i was watching instead of a story that i kind of was immersed in i totally get it i'm not gonna argue with you on at all about about it it first off if Lawrence olivier is in your movie it is inherently going to be more theatrical than cinematic because that's who he is yeah like that right there. I mean, it's a Shakespearean trained actor who refused to do anything other than act like everything he was in was Shakespeare to the point where there's a famous story from the movie Marathon Man. Have you ever seen it? No. It's one of his later movies with Dustin Hoffman. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good movie. Um, Dustin Hoffman's being chased down by Lawrence Olivier. He plays the bad guy. And uh, the whole crew wanted Lawrence Olivier to like tone it the fuck down. <laughs> But everyone was afraid of telling him that because it's Lawrence Olivier. 
And it's like, it's like 1970s. Like he is as much of a rock star as he was in the forties. He is like an institution of cinema in the seventies. Um, and so Dustin Hoffman went over to him and he was like, Hey, you know, we're just going to like do some practice runs secretly. They're going to record. Uh, we're just going to do some like walkthroughs of the scenes. So you don't have to like give it your all on this. And, and <laughs> Olivier saw right through it and basically told Dustin Hoffman to go fuck himself. And I basically like, I'm little Lawrence fucking Olivier bitch. I'm going to do this how I want to do it, bitch. Um, <laughs> and, uh, that's kind of who he was. So yes, whenever he's in your movie, expect that. Um, and kind of the same goes for Joan Fontaine. I like this because if you are in the mode of old movie, this has enough that's not old movie to be a little bit gripping in a different type of way. But I will also agree that it can lose you a lot in some of the older style of filmmaking where a lot of things would be presented very differently today. Like the the relationship between Mrs. Danvers and um, Joan Fontaine's character, whatever it was, uh, is not nearly as tension-filled as it would be if that mo- this movie was made today. Hell, if this movie was made 20 years after it was made like a lot of those scenes can get lost in how politely they're speaking to each other and how little the cameras are doing due to the technical constraints of the time to build tension. Um, sure. I really don't have anything positive or constructive to add on top of that. But yeah, I mean, these... It's just... I don't even know how to describe it. Let me. I'll, I'll try and think on it. And get back. I mean, what did you think of the actual story of this movie? Like, let's leave all like the filmmaking and the acting and shit to the side, you know, because this is this is a famous novel. Um, yeah. You know, it, it it's in the vein of like an Agatha Christie style type of thing, where it's a it's a murder mystery and there's intrigue and shit. Um, like, what do you think of the actual story that this movie has behind it? I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's it's so fairly basic. I mean, it's. I mean, granted. That's hard to say because, no, because I don't think it would be anything original in 1940, but it's, uh, all right, two people living in a house where there's a ghost haunting them because there's some level of blah, 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 of, you know, distraught or whatever. And it's just, it didn't seem like it really dove into anything special other than just like, it's a story. It's kind of what it is. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, l- listen. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a story of nuance. It's a story that's very much so... I'm sure it jumps off the page but the amount of nuance that I think this story requires because of the, like you just said, like the ghost kind of elements of it, even though it's not a literal ghost require, I think a certain amount of ambiance based in the world of based in the filmmaking that this movie doesn't provide. And I think part of it's because it can't like, with the technology yeah, at the time, can. it can't. Mm-hmm. 
and it's only more apparent watching it in 2021 80 years after it's been released that we do have these films that can do these things and we've seen this story done before and we've seen it done with the kind of technical and imagery that would be needed to express all of those details that in a what really seemed just like a super overexposed um you know black and white film in 1940 you just don't kind of get that it's did it seem like super bright to you and just kind of like washed out or was that just me and how i watched it no and my mind didn't seem too much like that i don't know but yeah, and you I was, know, I was surprised when you said it was uh, nominated for best uh, cinematography. Oh well, 1940. Who's to know? Who's to say what was going on back then? Yeah, um, yeah and you know, it, it's obvious that it's not the minds at work with this because you know, again, you transport yourself literally 20 years to the dot forward in time, 1960. That's when Psycho came, comes out, and yeah. Psycho has a variety of similar themes to it that this does this idea of being haunted by a figure that isn't really there and granted it's a little bit different because it's an active killer in psycho living out the image of his dead mother versus here where it's like a spectral haunting but still some of these ideas of something beneath the surface of whatever you know the the tensions are between the characters gets portrayed very differently after again really i think just advancements in the technology that is available to them because hitchcock's psycho the way it's shot feels contemporary watching it today in a lot of ways technically speaking some of the acting might lose you a little bit with some of the, you know, the, the way people talk and that type of shit. Cause again, 60 years ago, um, but in the way that it is pre- presented to you, it, it feels rather contemporary. Whereas this absolutely does not. And again, if you're, you can watch psycho today and feel exactly what it wants you to feel feeling it in 2021. Right. And this, there are lots of feelings that I think you and I can understand based on context, but do not come through the way they would have in 1940. And that's a big drawback to this film. Yeah. Any, any, I don't, honestly, I don't really have much else to say on this. Uh, I don't either. Um, I I still enjoy this movie. Like I I do like this movie. It's not again. I, I keep saying it. It's not my one of my favorite Hitchcock's. It's one of his more <clears throat> well reviewed ones, I suppose. But I'm also going to say that leans a little bit uh, due to the fact that it is more of an old Hollywood picture. Uh, plus, it has two wonderful actors and Hitchcock in his later years often worked with a lot of people nobody would know um you know no one knew who uh, like tippy hedron was when she got hired to be in the birds you know like she was not a famous actress 
Vivian Leigh in Hollywood or in um, Psycho was, but you know, exceptions for everything. But regardless, um, uh, I'd give this like a four. Uh, I'm probably not going to watch this again for a good long while, but I still like it. I'm going to give it like a two and a half. I'm probably not going to watch it again. I don't want to say that. I know I'm not going to watch it again. There's a lot of movies that I'll watch. I'm saying it. All right. Nothing bad, just not for me. Not for me. No, no. No, uh, no, no. All right. Well, then let's get into uh, next week's picks. We had two short episodes so far in back-to-back weeks, which uh not going to complain about. Uh, Corwin, what do you got for uh, next week's show? Spirited Away. Yo, I almost picked that. Nice. Oh, that's fun. All right. All right. I'm glad you picked it. All right, cool. Yeah. All right. So Corwin's going Spirited Away. I am going to go with The Shape of Water. I don't want to watch fish porn, dude. Have you ever actually seen it? No. I have no idea what goes on, but I've been told there's fish porn, so... Well, you're in for a treat, buddy. Oh, no, there's fish porn. That all but confirms it. Basically, you want to get watch some fish get freaky. We're here for it. All right. So that's 2017 Shape of Water and 2001 Spirited Away. Um, two wildly different movies, but also a little bit similar. Get ready for ghouls and goblins and weirdo shit. Um, also, Michael Shannon talking about pissing. That's in Shape of Water. Um... <laughs> Uh, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you want to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. Uh, if you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next Tuesday, y'all, have a good one. Bye-bye.